Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Just a heads up, today we'll be talking about sex and consent. There's a case before the Supreme Court of Canada right now that could change how the legal system decides on sexual assault. The court's ruling will address something called stealthing. That's when someone fails to use a condom when a sexual partner insists on it. There always has to be consent to sexual activity, otherwise it's sexual assault. So the question was, how do we get there? How do we determine that it's sexual assault? That's Sean Fine. He's the Globe and Mail's justice writer, and he joins us today to talk about the case and what it could all mean. So let's cut through the noise. You're listening to The Decibel. Hey, Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the case that's before the Supreme Court. What happened with Ross Mackenzie Kirkpatrick and an unnamed woman one night in 2017? Well, they met online. They went for coffee and had a two-hour conversation in which the woman said to him, allegedly, I have a condition for sexual activity. You have to wear a condom. And he agreed to do so, allegedly, and said that that makes sense. It's safer that way. Uh, they got together one night, uh, had sex. He wore a condom, went to sleep. He woke her up in the middle of the night and uh, they had sex again. But this time he did not wear a condom. She discovered this uh, later on uh, and went to the police. Police investigated and charged Kirkpatrick. And what exactly was the charge? It was sexual assault. And then what happened once police did press the charges? Well, it went to trial and the trial judge found uh, him not guilty. The Crown appealed, the appeal court ordered a new trial, and then uh, Kirkpatrick appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, which heard it the other day. So is this stealthing? Yeah, so this fits into this phenomenon called stealthing. Stealthing is uh, it's something that governments are, are, are becoming more and more concerned about. It is where um, someone either destroys a condom or um, removes it or just refuses to wear it. So you said the uh, initial verdict at trial was not guilty, and that has been appealed. What exactly is the court being asked to decide on that? Two things. First, on his case, whether he should have a new trial or whether they will just uh, restore the acquittal from the trial judge. And secondly, what approach to use to decide whether he um, was guilty of a sexual assault. They're not deciding whether he's guilty. They're just deciding what approach should be used and whether it should go back for another trial. But the whole thing has to be understood in light of a 2014 case that the Supreme Court ruled on. That set down how to deal with these cases of, of stealthing, although they did not use that word. So in 2014, there was a case of a man who was told he had to wear a condom. He poked holes in it before wearing it. Then he wore it, the woman got pregnant. And the man was convicted of sexual assault but appealed it to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court, there were seven judges on that case. They all said that was sexual assault. But they had two different approaches for figuring out why it was. The majority of four judges said it was sexual assault because the man committed fraud that nullified the woman's consent. There always has to be consent to sexual activity. Otherwise, it's sexual assault. So the question was, how do we get there? How do we determine that it's sexual assault? The minority said, we don't need to show fraud. All you need to know is the woman sets that condition, the man doesn't keep to it, that's sexual assault. So that may sound like a technical difference, but it isn't. 
because it can be difficult to prove fraud. To do so, you have to show two things. One, that there was deceit, meaning a, a deliberate attempt to mislead. And two, that there was harm or the risk of harm. In this case, pregnancy counts as harm. So um, in the current case, that played out because when Kirkpatrick was acquitted, the judge said there was no evidence that he deliberately intended to deceive the woman about him wearing a condom. And so um, he said, I'm bound by the Supreme Court ruling. They set down that approach and I'm bound by it. Then the case went to the appeal court in BC. That's the highest court of the province. And they said, well, the trial judge misinterpreted that 2014 ruling. Actually, that was done in the context of the facts of that case, which had to do with the holes being poked in the condom. This case, uh, Kirkpatrick's was about um, simply not wearing it. So the appeal court said they, they had some harsh words for the Supreme Court ruling. They said, taken at face value, it's totally out of touch with reality. So they had a way of interpreting it to give it some common sense, I guess you could say. Uh, and then it went to the Supreme Court and they looked at this. And uh, I don't think they're going to buy that approach of the appeal court that it was simply a misinterpretation of their earlier precedent. Hmm. Why not? What the court is doing here is they are interpreting the law of consent. And that law says that there has to be voluntary agreement to the sexual activity in question. And so the court is forced to interpret that phrase. And in the 2014 case, they're asking themselves, is wearing a condom part of the sexual activity in question? And the court the majority explicitly said, no, condom wearing is not part of that. That's why they went to fraud to get to sexual assault. And the importance is that, as I say, that this man, Kirkpatrick, was acquitted because there was no evidence. And that's troubling to some members of the court because it raises this issue of stealthing and how to make sure that people don't get away with this crime. You mentioned as one of the harms pregnancy. What are the other harms that are associated when we're talking about stealthing in a legal sense? Well, there could be transmission of disease, that, that would be a physical harm. But there's also a harm to dignity. That was a point made by women's groups who appeared as interveners in this case at the Supreme Court, that you know, women, or anyone for that matter, have the right to autonomy uh, and bodily integrity. And if they say that this is my condition and that's violated, that is a harm right there without showing any secondary harms to the body. But with fraud, the law says, here that you have to prove physical harm. So that's another reason that the women's groups were opposed to that approach of the 2014 majority, because they say, you know, sometimes you may have a woman who can't get pregnant, so there's no harm there. Maybe the man does not have an STD, so there's no harm there. Yet there's still a harm. So uh, they think that that approach is not wise. And fraud is more difficult to prove, right? Well, it's just adding another layer, another step. So with sexual assault, the, the question is, was there consent? Here, there was consent to the act, except on a condition. So now if you have to go prove fraud, it becomes more difficult. If you just say there was actually no consent, it's much easier to get a conviction. Another point that the women's groups raise here is that if you have to show bodily harm, you're going to have an invasive trial process where the woman is going to have to talk about her physical health status, conditions, and so on. And that, you know, there may be very personal information that has to be revealed to the police, to the Crown, and then before a courtroom. 
And, you know, to the extent that you make it harder to go through these trials, you're going to deter women from reporting this crime. That has always been a consideration for the last 40 years in sexual assault law, how to try to promote reporting and not deter it. So just uh, on that 2014 precedent-setting case, was the court concerned at the time about the implications of expanding the criminal law to cover stealthing? Yeah, so that was, the, the majority was very concerned about that. Uh, I don't think they used the word stealthing at the time, but they were concerned about criminalizing people who perhaps did not intend to commit a criminal act. And, you know, in, you know, these situations are very dynamic, fast changing, and, and perhaps the law would evolve, spin out of control, and people who maybe lied about something or violated some conditions stated or otherwise uh, might find themselves in, you know, in trouble with the criminal law. And, and criminal law is a very blunt instrument. You know, it can lead to jail, lifelong stigmatization. So they want to sort of limit its use to proper sphere. That was what the majority said. So on November 3rd, last week, the justices heard arguments in this one-day hearing. Can you describe how things work in the Supreme Court? What's it like there? Well, it's uh, I actually find it quite entertaining when I go there. But now the court is closed to the public, and the lawyers are all uh, doing this by Zoom. So they're sitting either in a home office or in their actual office and talking to the court. The court has been split into two benches. Usually it's one, now it's two because of COVID for social distancing. They're all wearing masks. And it's a real give and take. It's not about giving an hour-long dissertation. It's really about cutting to the the quick. And, um, you know, in this case, uh, there was a lawyer for the BC government. BC was uh, the government that, that prosecuted the case. They were trying to set out their case. And before they'd gone 30 seconds, the chief justice jumped in and said, uh, why should we overturn a precedent that's only seven years old? So that was a very important question for the court. Precedents are how courts operate. They follow precedent. They follow frameworks that are set. They're not just running by the seat of their pants and on basis of personal opinion. Now, the Supreme Court has overturned precedents many times in the past 10 or 15 years. But because this precedent is so recent, uh, the chief justice was asking, are we supposed to change it just because we have a bunch of new judges? That's not the way courts are supposed to do things. So that was his question. But in fact, uh, by the Supreme Court's own precedents, uh, they can overturn precedent when times have changed. That is when social conditions have changed, social understandings have changed, or uh, legal approaches have changed. So 2014 is very recent, but at the same time, you know, let's get real here. A lot has changed. Me Too came along, for instance. Stealthing is is more uh, widely recognized as a problem. Now, we've got California passing a law to make it a civil offense, uh, meaning that uh, women can sue perpetrators in civil court. Germany has something on the books. Uh, Britain has made it a crime. Um, New York and I think Wisconsin are, are, are talking about it. So it's a growing phenomenon. It got into it's into popular culture now with that show from the BBC, I May Destroy You. But anyway, we've, we've had a lot of social change. And uh, so the court certainly has the authority to turn the precedent around. When the chief justice says, you know, this isn't how the court's supposed to go, to me, it, it, that reads a bit like 
worrying about the optics of a decision or the optics around uh, new judges and a new roster. Is that the right way to be making law? Well, I'm not so sure it's optics. It's uh, a way to think about law that you respect precedent. It's it's uh, you stick within established frameworks and established precedent and not just throw out the old because you've got a bunch of new players. It's sort of like, you know, new judges come in and change the furniture. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. You've got to have real reason for overturning precedent. Was there anything that struck you uh, in observing the hearing? Uh, so, so the court was really split. You had one judge saying, talking about this criminal law spilling out of control if they changed their approach here. He held up his hand and he said, look, I've got a wedding ring on my finger. What happens if I'm a scoundrel? I, I slip it in my pocket. Things proceed. You know, uh, am I going to be found guilty uh, of a crime? Or, or what happens if, if uh, you know, the man doesn't wear a shirt when he's told to wear one? Would that be a crime? That was Justice Rowe. Uh, coming from Justice Michael Moldaver, he said, you know, he stressed the importance of women's autonomy. And he, he actually said, so what if, if she sets a condition of a man wearing a shirt? Who are we to, to question it? This is about autonomy. And we have been on record, uh, you know, supporting the need to respect autonomy for a number of years. That's interesting. I mean, there are those who might say that a group of nine people, the youngest of whom is in his mid-50s, might struggle to clearly adjudicate on something as modern as this, and frankly, potentially discomforting too. What role will the makeup of the bench, as far as age and, and experience, play in this decision? Well, I, I don't really see it that way. I mean, they're not a bunch of eunuchs. You know, you don't sort of suddenly forget everything when you turn 60. There's only one judge in his 70s, and he's been married four times. So uh, they've dealt with many sexual assault cases over the years, a, a good 10 or 12 in the last couple of years, in depth. And so... Um, I don't really see that as a big issue. I mean, some of them even have Netflix. I mean, to that point, you mentioned that it wasn't necessarily addressed in the hearing, but do you think that broader societal and cultural context, which includes you know, I May Destroy You and other shows, and the overall increased ease around sexuality, will that affect how the Supreme Court rules in this case? You know, it does. Courts tend to move in lockstep with society. They're not on their own somewhere. Now, some may be more ivory tower types than others, but, but uh, they are definitely influenced by what is in the air. And we all have a pretty good idea of what is in the air right now. And is that a good way to make law, that it, that it can be so affected by movements and activism? Well, what they try to do is uh, spend their, their, what we might call political capital wisely. You know, they're not taking the popular vote. Um, and sometimes they have to do very unpopular things. And so when they do or when they want to get out front of society, that's when they're spending their political capital. And they try to do it when they feel it's necessary. They try not to overdo it because it's very difficult for a court to do so. In this case, you have the two sides. Um, and uh, I actually have a sense of where I think they're going to go on this. Would you care to hear it? Uh, yes, Sean, I would like to hear it. So last time they were split four to three. On this court, there's only one judge left from that majority, and that is the chief justice, and there are two left from the minority. Um, and so from the hearing, you know, you can't always tell by people's questions, but uh, some of the judges were wearing their hearts on their sleeve, I have to say. And um, I sense that we're going to see perhaps three judges, maybe four, at the outside go for, you know, upholding the precedent 
And uh, I think we're going to get a slight majority saying, no, let's try to um, go back to the approach uh, recommended by the minority from 2014. That is, there's no consent if that condition is violated. So when do we find out if you're right or not? Uh, probably four to six months from now. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sean, for joining us today. Okay. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mikhailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pacenza is our executive editor. Thanks to our guest, Sean Fine. You can find more of his work at theglobeandmail.com. If you have any thoughts, email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I am grudgingly on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. And if you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.